0: To the church of God that is in Corinth.
1: To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be be saints saints together together with with all
2: those those who in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
2: And that there be no division among you.
1: But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ.
0: For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For the The body body does not consist of one member, but of many.
1: As it is, there are many parts, yet one body.
0: If one member suffers, all suffer.
1: If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Um, Our scripture reading today will be 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1-14. through Please join me as I read aloud. as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptations has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation that he will allow that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry.
2: And now those same verses in Swahili. And now those same verses in Swahili. Na kwamba wote walikuwa salama ile Bahari. Wote walibatizwa katika umoja na Mose kwa lilewingu na lile Bahari. Wote walikula chakula okay, baby oh <laughs> Wants to read the verses too. Wote walikula chakula kile kile chakiroho, watakanya na kinywaji kile kile chakiroho, maana walikunya kutoka kwa maramba kwa hiroho. Hata hivyo wengi wale walikuwa hawa kumpenza mungu na maite zao zali za jangani. Sasa mambo yao yote ni mfano kwetu. Yataonya sisi tumani uba kama walitutumani. Msime wabaudu sanamu kama baadhi wao, watu waliketi kunywa wakisima na kucheza. Verse 8. Walatusizini kama baadhi yao walibyozini, wakangamia siku moja kwa watu shirini tatu elfu. Tusimjaribu bwana kama baadhi yao waliyomjaribu. Verse 11. Basi mambo, walikuwa hawa yawa pata, wau na kulikozeo, kwa wengine, yali ile iletu kuonya sisi, ambao mwisho na wakati uti tukabili. Majaribu mulikumweza, pata na kuwaida binadamu, mungu ni wanaunifu, yaya mdaribu kupita ngubuzeno.
0: Thank Ruben and Davina for blessing us by reading the word. You might not have understood that Swahili but it was efficacious for your soul. Let me pray for us and then we'll start uh, working through the the text today. Father we're grateful for a beautiful day. Thank you for the change in weather and uh, even if just for a little bit um, it's given us just a chance to catch our breaths and uh, Thank you for the change of seasons. It reminds us of your creativity, of how uh, you love us through um, different ways. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gathering of your church today. We're not here because uh, we have to be. We're here because we get to. We get to gather with your church, and in fact, you exhort us to do that. To do it all the more as we see the days, the days, uh, the, the last days um, approaching. Uh, Open our ears and our eyes to what you would have us to see in uh, this text today, and may it be uh, efficacious towards us as a means of grace uh, from the Spirit to our souls, and pray that in Christ's name, and everyone said, amen, amen. Um, So the overarching issue that Paul keeps coming back to in this letter to uh, the church at Corinth is, how to follow Jesus but also be people that are in the cultures that he places us in and that really is the conundrum of the Christian life for all of us it's for the students that are heading back to school this week our college students that we acknowledged last week but all for all all of us that are adults in the room I think life pulls us in different directions and if we're not careful our desire to fit into the culture can actually keep us from living out the freedom that God intends for us. Paul has been on this sort of sub-theme of freedom for several chapters in this book because he wants the Corinthians to know that there is there's complete freedom in Christ. Um, Paul was saying Galatians, I, he's set us free um, for freedom's sake. There's nothing that should bound us, bind us as Christians, but how that plays out, and we'll deal with this a little bit more next week as well how our freedom plays out is that everything that we do that might lend to freedom is not necessarily beneficial for us and so he'll tackle that a little bit in our text today as well paul is showing us how the people of god throughout history share a bad habit and here's what that habit is it's god rescues us he sets us free He sets us on this pattern of living free in him. And then all of us have this tendency to return of sorts to the slavery and the bondage that we were formerly in. Maybe not completely, but we dabble our toes and we put our pinky fingers in it because it's in us to do that. We do that by serving other gods or things that the Bible would would convey that are godlike. And Paul will say in our text today that the church of Corinth did it. That Israel had done it, and by association, we do it too. That brings us to our text. I'm going to divide this text up into three three points. In the first point, Paul uh, he recounts idolatry. So he takes this church at Corinth, living in the first century, and he zooms them back two to four thousand years earlier, looking at uh, the the history of 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 Israel's idolatry. Look at verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I want you to notice there's a three-letter word here in these first four verses that Paul repeats five times. You see it? the so word all. What does all mean? All, right? Here's what Paul's doing. He's bringing to our attention that uh, this is the family history, not just of some Christians, but all, A-L-L, all of us. Specifically, he's making a link between the history of the nation of Israel and the church at Corinth, and of course, by extension, he's making that, that, uh, that claim to us as well. And he's saying the history of Israel is a spiritual heritage of the church. That's a loaded statement to make. It would take me 10 sermons to unpack what I mean by that. What I don't mean is that the nation of of Israel on the earth right now is is necessarily connected to the the nation of Israel that we read about in our Bibles. And I know that's going to surprise some of you, but they're not. The nation of Israel in today's day is a secular nation right and it's not necessarily mirroring what we read about in the bible i don't want to get caught up in that if you want to talk about that that's called dispensationalism it's not necessarily what i profess or preach uh we preach a covenant theology that god has always uh, had a covenant with his people before the time began uh he enacted it with adam in the garden Adam fell, and so he began a covenant of grace. Uh, immediately after that, it goes through Noah and through Moses. There we see God uh, covenanting with the nation of Israel. Uh, he pronounces a new covenant, uh, actually through David. He announces a new covenant uh, through Jeremiah that we see as a shadow of what Jesus does in the New Testament, and we're part of that new, that new covenant. And so when I say that the history of Israel is a spiritual heritage of the church, uh, basically my main point is it's a story of freedom, but also of slavery. That we see them supposedly living in freedom, but they end up living in slavery. And so Paul shares this family history, and he begins with the story of Exodus. He says in verse 1, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he's recalling the time that God through many miracles and his great works, brought Israel from over 430 years of bondage into freedom. They passed through the Red Sea because God divided it and caused them to walk through it. And then he brought them on the other side and he didn't just leave them to themselves. He appeared in a pillar of fire Uh, at night and a cloud by day, and he walked them through the desert. He provided manna for them for food. He gave them water from a rock. I mean, who was able to do that, right? God is preparing. I mean, he's uh, giving them all the things that they need, and then he brings them to Mount Sinai, and this is the place where God really um, turns this family of people, these tribes of people, into a nation, and on Mount Sinai, he gives them a few rules, a few rules to to organize themselves and live as a people under God. He gives them the Decalogue, the 10 words. We call it the 10 commandments. And the first of those commandments is in verse, uh, is Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is really the, the first commandment, verse 3. You shall love no other gods before me. Those are significant words. The, this is the moral law that still applies to us today. And in them, they're important because God, because God is telling Israel to not be like the nations that are surrounding them. Because all the nations that were surrounding them, to include, to include Egypt, were polyistic. They worshiped multiple gods at the same time. So these these pagan nations looked to these gods to govern the affairs of their world. The, uh, the Egyptians, for example, had a god for every occasion, and for every season, and for every emotion that they had. And they would, uh, they would uh, think that they in themselves would have to appease these gods so that the gods would be favorable to them but also they would appease these gods so that they themselves would get what they wanted. And so uh, if they wanted to have a good harvest, they would worship the god of the Nile, Hapi, that was the god of the Nile. So they would have a good water supply so that their crops would, of course, be watered. They'd also worship the god of the sun, the sun god Ra, so that they'd have favorable weather. And of course, they had gods for every occasion. Paul will say later that these so-called gods, particularly the gods of Egypt, were nothing but but demons at best, evil spirits, all of them. Interestingly, when we when we read about the the, the ten plagues that God brings that prefaces God delivering Israel out of Egypt those 10 plagues, what God is doing is he's mocking these so-called gods. So every one of the plagues was, was a mockery over Egypt's gods. The blood of the Nile was, was mocking the god of the Nile, and the frogs, the gnats, the thighs, the hail, all the way to the 10th plague, where God takes the firstborn son. He, in that plague, is mocking Pharaoh himself, who called himself a god. And he, what did God do? He took the, he took the God's son, and that 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 demigod was not able to do anything about it. And so, through these plagues, God is um, he's mocking and he's demonstrating to Egypt, but also alerting Israel that there is no God but the one true God, the God of heaven and earth. That God is God alone. His name is Yahweh. But just think think about that for a second. What would have what would it have been like? to try and please all these multiple gods that they worshiped. Just trying to figure out how I'm supposed to worship one particular god in one season or f- to get one outcome and, and how I'm supposed to worship another god in another, another season to get a different outcome. And so perhaps if you're having trouble conceiving, maybe it was because you weren't worshiping the god of fertility, right? Or perhaps if you were having trouble with your crops dying The insects were coming and uh, eating them up before the harvest time. Maybe it was because you didn't make the right sacrifice to those gods that in turn controls the insects. Trying to keep all these gods happy was like a full-time job. And that's why God would tell uh, the Israelites that living in freedom is not worshiping a bunch of gods and trying to appease them like the Egyptians were doing. You have one God. And when that one God is your main God, you don't need all these, sub, uh, these lesser gods uh, and bow, bowing down to them, but to worship the one true God, Yahweh. And so here's the reason why Paul is pointing this out. He's pointing this out as an example, we learn in verse six, 11 and 12, because Israel had a hard time with this. In fact, look at verse five, here's what he says. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So as Paul responds to the, the, the letter that the Corinthians had sent them, he's responding also to reports that he's gotten from the Corinthians. He's saying, all right, so let me, let me just remind you of your history. Your, your spiritual heritage comes from Israel. Uh, you're in a new covenant, but guess what? You're doing the very same things that the Israelites have done, and look where it led them. And so he's calling them out on this. There've been a lot of bad moments in the life of the history of Israel. Perhaps one of their worst moments ever was later in their story when Moses is on the mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. Uh, He had already given the Ten Commandments. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, he's receiving the Ten Commandments. The people are getting impatient They're thinking that this God that just brought them through the Red Sea has left them and the guy that God chose to lead them has vacated them. And so what do they do? They call uh, Aaron the priest, uh, Moses' brother, and says, hey, we don't know about Moses or this God, but why don't you make a God for us so he can represent uh, us Having delivered, you know, this guy, can, uh, we can have a statue or an idol to represent this, this God that we're supposed to serve. And so Aaron bows down to that. He tells all of the Israelites to, uh, to gather all their gold, and he fashions a calf made of gold with his own hands. And then hear he, this, what, what Aaron says. He says, Hear, O Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, of course, we're on the other side of that and we know how the story goes. But anyway, you read that, it just sounds ridiculous. It sounds crazy. And here's why because the God of all the earth, the God with unlimited power and resources, had just rescued this nation. They, had saw, him, they, they saw God bring just like crazy miracles against one nation to free them. I mean, isn't that what just happened? Not only that, he provided for them and said that freedom in the the first commandment was found in worshiping him and him alone, and yet what do they do? God is gone for for two seconds, and they decide to worship other gods made with their own hands. Of course, it would be right for us to ask, why do they do this? A simplistic, a simplistic answer would be that they desired a God who would not just deliver them but they wanted a God who would be with them. And if you think about those words, a God that would not just deliver them but be with them, that sounds like a right kind of desire. We should want that same kind of desire today. A God that would know us and keep us uh, in his care, deliver us from, from hurt, harm, and danger. Those are the words that we sometimes pray. And a God that be, would, would be with us. here's what Israel was doing. They were looking in the wrong places to meet that desire, because they already had a God like that, and he had already been doing all those things. In fact, he had just done it in grand fashion. I think the truth of the matter is they did not know how good they had it. They wanted a microwave God, a God they can just like you know, snap their fingers two times, and a minute later, they get whatever the desire of their heart was. And when Moses, uh, when God calls Moses up to the mountain, they, they are without the, the, the presence they think of God in their lives. And what do, they, what do they do? They decide to look to other gods to make themselves happy. And here's what the Bible calls that the Bible calls it idolatry. Idolatry happens in ordinary life, and it happens at the level of our desires. Everyone in this room, God made you with desires, and we learn from Scripture. I mean, this is kind of intuitive. He made those desires to be fulfilled in him and in his ways. But when we go elsewhere and to other ways to get those desires filled, the end result is usually idolatry. It's kind of like thirst. Our bodies are designed to to need water and to, to quench our thirst. You can drink a whole bunch of other stuff, sometimes when you're real thirsty, but it's water that your your body is designed to need. And so unless it gets water, you're going to drink a whole bunch of stuff with sugar and all this other kind of additives in it, but your body needs and wants water. Any Star Wars fans in the room? All right. So, I got I'm not I'm not a Star Wars guy, but I mean, I've enjoyed the movies because my my kids have enjoyed the movies and uh, I'm I'm really a fan of that the the three three movies ago. Like um, the Force Awakens, remember that movie? Um, and there's a particular scene that reminds me of just our body's need for, for thirst. So you got Finn, FN-2187. Him and Poe got shot down by, the, by the, the First Order. They end up in a desert. Poe, we learn later, gets, uh, gets captured and taken off by the First Order. And you got Finn just walking, just trouncing through the desert. And he's like going nowhere. He has nothing, I mean, he, he's perishing, and you can tell he's on his last leg, and he's about to like d- d- scoop his hand in some sand and eat it when he looks up and he sees this random village out of nowhere. So he wills himself to the village, he gets there, and he's like, oh, water, oh, I need water. And he goes to his watering hole. And you can tell something was wrong with it because he's got this, it's like an animal and it's like a combination of an elephant and a giraffe and a rhinoceros. And it's like it's like slopping this nasty looking water. And what does Finn do? He sticks his head in that stuff and he's like, and then, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done it, but he did it. He's, he like, starts, throw, he's like he starts throwing up because it's probably nasty and stinky, probably got parasites in it. He probably would have died if he had finished drinking that that water, all right? But the animal sort of boots him out of the way. I kind of think that's how idolatry is. It's, it's, you're so hard to get something that you're desiring that you're willing to go to the point that you would ingest or subject yourself to something that's not good for you. It's like, I mean, perhaps Finn would have been better off just eating the sand. It's never going to satisfy. And that's exactly what Israel does. And that's what the the church at Corinth were doing as well. And at least in a downward spiral. Here's what Paul does. He gives three examples of what this downward spiral for Israel looks like. Beginning in verse seven, he says, don't be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to drink, to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's an example from Numbers 25. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 21,000 fell in a single day. That's an example from Numbers 21. Verse nine, we we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents uh, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's an example from Numbers 14, and we don't have time to go back and sort of unpack all of those. But Paul is recounting how Israel's history progresses as their idolatry leads them into further sexual immorality that turns into destruction, their own destruction, like life in destruction, that leads to grumbling and all because they're not satisfied. They got these desires and they're looking elsewhere other than God to get those, those desires satisfied and it leads them down the wrong path. And then skip down to verse 18. Paul's going to continue this example of Israel and, and their idolatry. Consider the people of Israel. That is an interesting phrase here's what um, here's what that phrase means it means this is an example of Israel in their flesh in other words here's an example of Israel and, and in their worst self consider the people of Israel as bad as they could be are not those are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Next week, we're gonna come in and and Paul's gonna start with this phrase. Hey, all things are lawful, but everything is not helpful. Okay, so what he's just said here is kind of cryptic unless you keep going in the text. Remember, this is a letter, and he's writing his thoughts, and they're flowing. All right, so I'm going to cut it off here, um, but, for the, but for the, here's what we need to know. Paul is mentioning a pagan practice to offer sacrifices to pagan gods, and then this is what Israel would do. They would eat and drink in celebration to those gods. That's what they were doing. And Paul is making this point to the Corinthians because they were doing the same thing. In fact, it would not have been uncommon for the Corinthians to participate in pagan sacrificial uh, ceremonies as if they were going to a church service singing songs to God like we're doing here today. And then immediately after that, go out for a nice meal with their friends afterwards. They would have thought nothing about that. And why would a people that had experienced the the presence of God and had Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them do stuff like that? They did it because that's the way the culture was. They were just fitting into their culture. These worship practices were part of their social landscape. This was how relationships were created and how business was conducted. And to not participate in those kind of things would cost them greatly. It would cost them in relationships and friendships. It would cost them professionally in terms of their building, uh, their, their, their businesses. And yet this is exactly what Paul is challenging them to consider. Here's Paul's judgment. He puts it right in the middle of our text. It's verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Flee it. Paul tells the church at Corinth, y- you can't have it both ways. You can't have God, the God of heaven and earth, the one who created it all, the one who who created you as your God, and then have a side hustle of all these other lesser gods. You can't have the God of heaven and and earth as your God and at the same time have anything to do with pagan worship. There is a freedom to be had for all of us who are in Christ, but there are some things that are not beneficial for us. Next week he's gonna unpack what that unbeneficiality means. But for today, we need to we need to just rest in this. Here's what Paul's saying: They belong to God, and so they weren't to run to other gods. They've been loved lavishly by God, so they don't need to look elsewhere. And that's exactly what Israel and the Church at Corinth were doing. One commentator says this: They, the Corinthians, wanted to participate in shaping in the shaping liturgy of the church, while maintaining the shaping the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. As a result, they ended up trapped between two different versions of themselves. They were leading double lives. Idolatry isn't a choice between two gods, it's the attempt to serve many gods at the same time. Idolatry, he says, is syncretism. You catch what he's saying? He's correcting what most of us think that idolatry is. Uh, I think many of us have this perspective of uh, idolatry is, all right, I'm just going to reject God completely, and I'm going to go serve something else, something man-made or something that I can do, and that's going to, I'm going to put all my focus, all my energy into that. That's, that's a lot, what a lot of us think that idolatry is. He's saying, mm, that's not idolatry. This is what idolatry is. Idolatry is you got a foot in both camps, and you're like stretching yourself, and you're saying, all right, so I, I do want to worship Jesus. I lean this way on Sunday, but I also want to worship all other kind of stuff. And then that stuff keeps, I can't do a split. y'all. Like that, that, that stuff stretches you. The Holy Spirit in you stretches you to worship and love and serve God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. And all that other stuff in your life stretches you the opposite way. And at some point, you're going to break. That's what idolatry does. And this this wasn't just a problem for Israel. Of course, Paul is using the the example of Israel. It was a problem for Corinth, and he was pointing that out. And it's a problem for us, too. And this brings me to my second point: experiencing idolatry. Here's the truth: transit church, all of us experience idolatry. You can say you don't, but you do. Here's my contention. The, the cities that we live in here in D.C., Alexandria, all the surrounding suburbs of D.C. I mean, just just like Corinth, Corinth. But any city in America, how regardless of how little or how big, is just like Corinth. And while most of us aren't engaging in idol worship, orgy feasts. I mean, we aren't. We don't. We aren't breaking out or, uh, Ouija boards, conjuring up evil spirits and stuff like that. At least I hope you're not. Um, and we're not purposefully going out and creating, uh, looking to other things and elevating them above the level of where we think God should be in our lives. But we do have idols in our lives. Our culture, notably here in DC, features the gods of success and money and power and safety and happiness, and we're worshiping all those things, all of us. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. We got, we got a, 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 a toe dabbling in worshiping our God like we should, and we got a toe dabbling in the worship of other things, whatever we need to make us happy at the moment. And because we're in the community and the culture, none of us are immune from its pull. Look what Paul says in verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is explaining. All right, so this stuff happened to them and in the providence and the sovereignty of God, he caused men like you to write this stuff down so that you would see what they did and learn from it, not mimic it. But then he explains a little bit more that idolatry happens in in the ordinary parts of our lives but more importantly, it happens at the level of our desires. He says that in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Here's what I think Paul is doing. Paul is not so concerned about the, the particular situation for the church at Corinth, although he you know, he does name a few things that they're doing. He's taking a step back, or at least trying to get them to, and he's wanting to give them a bigger framework for understanding what idolatry looks like in their lives, what, how it manifests in the particular day that they're living and how in turn we can notice it in our own selves and make wise choices in all the little decisions that are part of the, the, you know, the, the everyday things that we all do. One, co- one commentator says this, idolatry happens in ordinary life. Idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on a level of appetite and desires. Idolatry shows up in the subtle twist of ordinary desires and activities. It's eating, it's drinking, it's playing, it's marrying, it's having sex. Those activities and desires are often not ends in and of themselves, but they are means to another end, personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control, I mean, you fill in the blank. Wherever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we then are committing adultery. So here's the question for, I mean, this is the question we got to ask from all that for this sermon. All right. So where are the idols in your lives? What? What? Where are the idols in your lives? What are you worshiping? And, and we got to ask ourselves some hard questions. Like, what can I not live without? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, for me, that's easy, ice cream. Like, come on now. Like, my, I can hear my wife in my ear, and I like, we don't need ice cream. Like, we always need ice cream. Are you kidding me? I don't need cake, but I need ice cream. What, what do I want more than anything? Ice cream. <laughs> What am I most afraid of losing? My freezer that won't freeze my ice cream. (laughs) For some of you, it's not ice cream. It's your career. I'm just joking, I got other things that that are idols in my life. But ice cream is one of them, I'm being honest. (laughs) But for some of you here, it's your career. You work 60, 70, 80 hours a week and it's not because you have to, it's because you're trying to get ahead, trying to make a name for yourself, you're trying to get ahead of your peers, you're trying to climb that ladder of success, and it's working, you're being rewarded for your, your idolatry, and you're doing it to the neglect of the family that's at home that you should be spending a few of those, uh, those hours with. And so what would happen like, if you're like that and tomorrow you, get, you show up to work and they tell you that, you're, that you have been like, eliminated from that job or worse, that you've been reassigned. If, if, if you're thinking about that like, like causes anxiety in your soul, then maybe this is you and your career is an idolatrous part of your life, an idol in your life. For some of you, maybe it's your kids He went there, yes. I mean, we're a church of families. Y'all are everywhere, right? And sometimes our idol is being a successful parent. And here's what a successful parent looks like, is you want everybody to see your kids as being successful, which by extension means that you're successful because you're the one sort of controlling them. And so you got your kids in all kind of stuff, like extracurricular activities, sports, dance, creative stuff. Your kids are already smart because you're like homeschooling them all year round, right? But then you've got a lot of extra academic tutoring to help them get ahead so that one day they can max the ACT and the SAT and get in a good college for free and then have a successful future. And that's not going to be good for them. It's going to be good for you. And while your kids are little, you make sure they don't act out in front of anybody because if your kids act out, that will reflect not on your kids who are just being kids. It will reflect on you. And if I've on your toe by what I've said, that means your kids are an idol. For some of you, it might be a relationship. Let's say you're single, and all you can think about is just looking forward to the day that you walk down the aisle with that man or that woman, and they fulfill your life. In fact, the only reason that you have problems right now is because you have this gaping hole in your soul of not having a a mate with you all day, all night, and you can do everything with. And it's not wrong to have relationships like that, but if you think that if you had that, everything would be wonderful. You need to go back like four weeks ago and listen to my sermon, uh, right, on on chapter 8 or 9 about what it means to be single, being content in that. So here's the question, strangers Church, what do you want more than anything? What are you afraid of losing? And I think the answer to some of the questions like that holds the key to things that might be idols in our lives. So I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think it's true. All of us are struggling with some kind of idol. Maybe you know what it is, maybe you're not even aware of it. I would be the first to say, I've got some idols in my life, and ice cream truly is one of them. I don't like to go without ice cream. I don't like to have like with, without like two two pints of ice cream in the refrigerator, and that, that's like low for us. And and I've passed that on to my kids. My kids like little ice cream idoler idolatry like people. They love it. Jonathan can go without it, but the other two, oh my gosh, we love ourselves some some ice cream. Um, true story though. All right, so our staff. We met a couple of weeks ago, in a staff for our church. We met a couple weeks ago, and uh, we, one of the things that we did this time was we did some Enneagram work. All right, y'all all heard of the Enneagram, right? If you haven't heard of the Enneagram, then you're under a rock. Come out from under a rock, right? I'm not saying the Enneagram is the end-all, be-all of any uh, personality test, but it is, it is interesting, and I think it's accurate. So we did some Enneagram work, and I'm not... Uh, uh, um, I'm not an Enneagram expert by any means. Uh, I had not actually taken the test up until doing it with our staff. I was told I was a two. A two is a helper, a server, and that made sense to me. I, I, call, I kinda like working with people and helping people, and I just took some some friends of mine's uh, advice, like, yeah, you're a two, this is who you are. I took the test and found out I wasn't a two. I'm a three. Y'all know what a three is? It's like an achiever. Yeah, and then I, I, I and then I read the I read the the, the like the thing that makes you a three success oriented. was like uh oh, pragmatic, adaptable, excelling, driven, image conscious. Like, oh my gosh, this is me. And we did a, a Christian version of it, and so here's what this Christian version of it did for us. It tells us here's what, here's what you're like in your sanctified self, and here's what you're like in your flesh, and it, it like it just it like floored me. Here's here's Jeff sanctified. I'm optimistic, I'm confident, I'm industrious, I'm efficient, I'm self-propelled, I'm energetic, I am practical, and that is me to a T. But in my flesh, I'm deceptive and narcissistic and pretentious and vain and superficial and vindictive and I'm overly competitive. And and, and it's absolutely true. (laughs) Right? Right? And so at any moment, I'm like being stressed between um, trying to do, you know, try not necessarily be successful for success sake, but it's in me to want to move things along and to start stuff and to help people and to do well at doing that but I also have this part of me that's like, you know what? I have some alternative reasons for doing all this stuff and I don't need to be seen, but I at least want to be acknowledged that I have a part to do with it, right? And so, it, isn't that all of us that we're stretched between these two kinds of sides of ourselves and it's easy for us to move back from serving Jesus to serving some other God? For me, it's the God of achievement. And if I'm honest, that God of achievement can get me in trouble because it can make me, it can, it can lead me to do things that are not really mine to do, it's not in my gift set, and I'll do it to get the task done. But at the end, somebody else could have done it and it would have been done more lovingly, probably a little bit more efficient, and it would have come out a whole lot better. My achievement side of me gets me in trouble at home because I'll come home and if I, if I notice that my, especially in our homeschooling days 10 years ago, if I come home and the house is a mess and the kids are in pajamas and it, they're just being a family, and I and in my mind, if they hadn't finished all the tasks that I thought the family should finish in a particular day, I would just blow up. Y'all heard me say from the pulpit. My wife should put me in time out. Like, like you need to leave. Go upstairs. Take a like. Right, pray. Take a shower. Change your clothes. Do whatever you gotta do. But don't bring that mess home. That's what happens to all of us when we are pulled between two different jobs, and that's what idolatry does. Idolatry really is like having a job with two bosses, with each of them having a different set of expectations for you so that when you try to make one of your bosses happy, at the same time you're letting the other one down. It's a tug-of-war of expectations, and it can feel impossible to keep up. And of course, it is. It's hard to keep multiple gods happy. But when we worship idols, we become divided people. The more gods that we worship, the more schizophrenic we become. And all of us experience this. The theologian John Calvin famously said, the, heart, the human heart is like a factory of idols. All of us in this room, we're constantly worshiping something. Hopefully it's Jesus, but more than likely, it's, something, it's Jesus and something else. And it's hard to get away from that. So whether you like it or not, this is the human problem. Christian and non-Christian alike, but if you consider yourself a Christian, this is um, characteristically and inconsistently what the Bible describes as to who God has made you to be. So that might be our lot in life. It might be who we are right now, but that's not who Jesus has made you to be. And Paul points that out in the next part of our text, verse 16, he says this, He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Paul is pointing to communion, this activity that we do, and we'll do it in a few minutes here at the end of our service, where... We are made one with Jesus. We're unified with him, united with him. As he is, so are we. In the early church, they would have used one loaf to serve the many people. They would have used one cup. And symbolically, this is saying, we are one body with Christ. His body is ours. His life was our life. His death, our death. Of course, his resurrection, our resurrection. As he is, so are we. His blood spilled to um, forgive us of our sins, purify us, reconcile us to God the Father. And that's why our adultery is like our, our idolatry is like spiritual adultery. It's like saying we've taken the part of us that's Christ that's exclusively supposed to be in relationship with him and we're using it and spreading it to all other kind of lovers. So we're engaging idolatry, we literally are cheating on jesus it's like looking him in the face and saying you know what jesus you don't satisfy me i'm going to go somewhere else and so here's the last thing paul tells us he said he tells us what the way of escape is that we can actually escape idolatry and it comes in a verse that we it's a refrigerator verse this is one of the first verses i learned in navigating as a cadet at west point it's one of the verses that you put on your refrigerator that you have embroidered in a frame and put it on your wall Right, First Corinthians, ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you're beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'm going to break this verse down, and then we'll be done. Here's what he says. First, he says, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man." Paul is saying you're not alone, you're not crazy. Everybody on the planet is experiencing this same thing. We're in this together. None of us is better off or worse off than others. And then he says, these are beautiful words, God is faithful. You ever notice when God, um, when the Bible points out things that um, are fleshly about us and things that he wants to transform in us by his spirit, he doesn't say, you're jacked up, and if your faith isn't strong, your faith isn't strong. You're gonna, you're gonna come to your end. He says, "Yeah, you're a little messed up, but here's here's what I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you my faithfulness. I'm gonna be faithful to you because you can't be faithful to me. In fact, you can't even be faithful to yourself. And so I'm going to, I'm going to." Um, lavish my love on you based on my faithfulness. That's what he's doing here, saying you are an idolatrous people. You got one foot in both camps trying to please me and other things. I'm going to be faithful to you. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? Textbook Answer Church. This is like Sunday school. It's what the kids' ministry back there is talking about. They're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the way of escape. Why Jesus? Because he forgives us of our sins. He forgives us our failures. He satisfies our longings and our souls. He's the one that sets us free. This is typified in the the story of the prophet Hosea in the minor prophet book in the Old Testament where God tells this, this prophet to go and marry uh, the prostitute Gomer. He does that. They have kids. And even after marriage and kids, she, she continues to be unfaithful to him. And this is a picture not just of Israel. It's not just a picture of what the church at Corinth was doing. It's a picture of us. Jesus is like a faithful husband who invites his adulterous bride to come home. And though she deserves to be rejected, he welcomes her in and accepts her, and he loves her. And so these are hard words to hear, but we're like that adulterous bride that walked away when we shouldn't have. And to know that Jesus invites us back and welcomes us home is the best news that you could ever get on any given day. It's good news, especially on those, on those bad days when you know that you're not doing the things that God would want you to do. The gospel tells us that Jesus inviting us to himself and forgiving us of our spiritual adultery cost him his life. That's why he goes to the cross for it. And Jesus does it because he loves us. But he also does it because of the covenant that he and the father have before the foundation of the, of the world towards us. And that's good news. I'll, I'll say these and then I'll finish. You know, some of the some of us in this room are worshiping Jesus today, but you're also worshiping, worshiping your career and your boss. And you need to know that Jesus is, He wants you to not worship your work, but He's pleased with you. Why? Because God meets us in the ordinary and He He meets us in, at the level of our desire. Jesus is enough. Some of you in this room are trying to worship Jesus and money. You're saving up, retirement, and investing, and all those things, and you should do that. But you're counting on your money to save you. And from this, we learn that that Jesus is enough. He meets you in the ordinary of what you would, what you're tempted to turn into an idol: your money, your affluence, the security that you've made for yourself. He said that you can't be any more secure than, you, than, than having me as your God and worshiping me as, 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 I, as, as I call you to myself. Some of you in this room are trying to worship Jesus in a relationship. You're longing for that perfect one to come along, or you're already in a marriage, and you're like, Lord, just zap him, zap her, make her perfect, and it's not going to happen because in your marriage, God is using your spouse as a tool of sanctification, He's changing you through your spouse. They are the way they are on purpose. God is using them. And God meets you in the the level of your desires. He meets you in the ordinary to satisfy the deepest parts of your heart that long for genuine relationship. And he tells you that he is enough so you can be content. And then some of you in this room are trying to worship Jesus in material things. Constantly looking to buy stuff because you think it's going to make you happy. And you need to know that Jesus, he's the only one that can really satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. You can buy stuff. It's not wrong to buy stuff. But when you when that when you're looking to that stuff to fill the hole in your heart, you're never going to do it. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the living water that satisfies your soul. No temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he also provides the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're all tempted to succumb to idols, aren't we? The way of escape is Jesus, and he empowers us by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And so today... Let's turn from our idols. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, for uh, the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul to point to Israel as an example and to show the church at Corinth and by extension us that their example was written down that we might not do what they are doing. Lord, there's some things, there's so many things that we do unintending and we pray that you would rescue us from those things. Lord, we are fickle people. We'll worship you today, and tomorrow we'll wake up, and we will worship ourselves. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you illumine those areas of our lives where we are prone to idol worship. So God, even today, as we ask ourselves these hard questions, I pray that you would uh, bring them to mind. Help us to see ourselves as you see us, and and Lord, uh, we thank you that you don't condemn us in Jesus. You tell us that you're faithful, you're a faithful God, faithful, more faithful to us than we can be to ourselves. And for that, we turn and we look to you. We pray that's in Christ's name, Amen and Amen.